Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Any kids can head out to story keepers or nursery at this time. Before we begin looking at this passage, let me ask God's help in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are the God who speaks. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself through your word and that you have revealed to us the reconciliation that you have caused through your son, Jesus. Lord, your word is truth and it is the authority over our lives. So we would ask, Lord, that you would humble us now as we look into it, that you would come, Holy Spirit, and be our teacher, that you would help us to understand and see the things that you have for us today. Lord, that you would grow us in Christ, that we would delight in him all the more. Lord Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So in 1995, the cinematic world was rocked. A new production company burst onto the scene and released a film that would change the way that we thought about and viewed animated movies forever. I was seven years old. I was seven years old when Toy Story was released and I've seen it I don't know how many times. Carl and I have watched it with Penny and Jasper. I don't know how many times. I'm sure a lot of you are very much the same way. And one person who I will always associate with Toy Story is Randy Newman. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed. Just remember what your old pal said. You have a friend in me. The singer-songwriter's iconic tune will forever be associated with Toy Story. And it's the type of song that will probably be stuck in your head now the rest of the day, so you are, you are welcome for that. But as we consider the verses that Loren read for us from Philippians chapter 1, Newman's words actually hit on something that's very important that Paul is trying to communicate to us through this passage. The joy of friendship. The joy of friendship, particularly friendship that is grounded in the gospel. Friendship that is grounded in Christ. 
So that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about this morning, is the joy of friendship in the gospel. We're going to think about this pretty, pretty simply, just thinking about it in two parts. First, Paul's joy, and secondly, Paul's prayer. So think about the joy of friendship in the gospel. We'll think about Paul's joy and Paul's prayer. We'll start thinking about Paul's joy by looking at the first few verses that Loren read, verses 3 through 8. Let me read those for us again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It seems most likely that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome. He mentions that imprisonment specifically in verse 7, but later as the letter continues on, he's going to give us more details about what that imprisonment looked like. And how God was actually using Paul's imprisonment, a a situation that we might think is absolutely terrible, but how God is actually using it for the advancement of the gospel. Here in these opening verses, Paul writes to friends, his friends in the Philippian church, to thank them for their support, for their partnership in his ministry. Probably thanks for a, a financial contribution that came to Paul. But we shouldn't think that this letter is just kind of an ordinary run-of-the-mill thank-you note. Paul's thanks doesn't come from mere obligation, but from a sincere love for these people. Commentators will often talk about the similarities between Paul's letter to the Philippians and ancient Greco-Roman friendship letters. And I I think that's exactly what we see in this text. This This is Paul's friendship letter to the Philippians. Scholars will point out how these ancient friendship letters had particular qualities about them, qualities that we see in Paul's own writing. Writers of these ancient friendship letters often spoke about their affection for the recipients. And so we see Paul do the very same thing. In verse 8, he tells the Philippians how he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Another theme that's often found in these ancient friendship letters is the emphasis on fellowship or partnership that the writer and the recipient are somehow yoked together with this common mission, this common allegiance. And this is perhaps one of the things that stands out to us most in these verses, and a theme that Paul is going to pick up again and again on throughout the letter. We see in verse 5 and verse 7, Paul's joy for the Philippians comes from their partnership in the gospel, that they, like Paul, are partakers with him in grace. Likely, Paul has in mind not so much their common faith here, even though that is something clearly that they share, but their common mission to make Jesus known to the world. The Philippians have partnered with Paul, as he tells us in this mission, from the first day. He might have in mind here the events that we read about in Acts chapter 16, when Paul gets his call to go to Macedonia that led him to Philippi, all the way until now when he finds himself imprisoned in a Roman jail cell. Paul's thankful and he's joyful to be yoked together with these people as they strive together 
for the gospel of Jesus. So this partnership then has a common mission. It has a common allegiance to Jesus. But with this partnership comes common struggles. Paul and the Philippians not only share in the work, but they share in the hardships that come with that work. Chapter 1, verse 30, Paul tells us how that the Philippians are engaged in the same struggles and conflicts that he faces. Even though they were geographically separated, they share the common struggles of gospel ministry. They do that together. So partnership brings with it common mission, common allegiance, common struggles, but also common joys and a certain like-mindedness that each party would share. This is also true of Paul. So he writes to his friends in Philippi. We see multiple places within the letter, Paul urging the Philippians to be like-minded. He urges them to share a similar way of thinking, a, a thinking that is shaped by the gospel. So this, this letter is about the joys of friendship, yes, but it, it's a friendship that is, that is thoroughly shaped and guided by the selfless love of Christ, who, as Paul tells us in chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." It's actually very important for us to know that. We need to know where Paul's mind is at as we read this letter, how he's, he's fixed on Jesus and how he is urging his friends to fix their minds on Jesus as well. We need to know this because it's the only way that those opening verses that Loren read for us actually make any sense. Right? We consider the, the context of the letter. Paul is in prison. He's in a position where, where death is a real possibility for him. We read further into chapter 1 to see that that is the case. He's facing opposition from people who are trying to cause more trouble for him. Later, he's warning the Philippians to watch out for their own opponents, to be prepared for their own sufferings. And we might ask ourselves, well, in light of all of this, how is it that Paul can actually be thankful to God for the situation that he's in? How is it that he can make prayers with joy when his, when his circumstances seem so bleak? And to help us get underneath these, these first two verses, verses 3 and 4 a little bit, we need to consider whether we actually think about joy in the same way that Paul thinks about joy. Right? So back in, back in early March, I got to hear Pastor Jay Kim speak at Karen University's Church Leaders Conference. Jay is a pastor at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. And a lot of what he said in that talk, though he was talking about the effects of technology on the church, a lot of what he said in that talk resonated with me as far as our, our modern understanding of joy. So in that talk, Pastor Kim referenced the work of a late 90s British psychologist, Michael Essick. And Essick coined this phrase, the, the hedonic treadmill. And hedonic comes from the word hedonism, which is this unremitting pursuit of pleasure. We, we chase after those things that feel good. So the picture looks something like this. How often do we find ourselves sitting at home and we're dreaming of obtaining something we desire? It could be a better job, it could be a better car, a better house. 
with all the accompanying thoughts that if we just had this thing, we would just be, we'd be so much happier. However, we take a step back and we look around at the things that we already have, and it's likely that at one point in time we thought the very same thoughts about those things, and we obtained them, and for a moment we were happy, and then that happiness faded and we began to pursue and desire other things. That's the hedonic treadmill. We're familiar with this image of a, of a horse being led by a carrot. Well, we're often led by these sparks of pleasure. I'm sure we've all watched sparks jump from a fire into the night sky, and they only last but for a, a short moment before they're gone. And when we link pleasure with joy, we find ourselves jumping from one spark of pleasure to another spark of pleasure to try to kindle this lasting joy, but it doesn't work. It lasts only for a moment, but it's, it's gone. Then we're on to the next thing. We often find ourselves just chasing the wrong thing, seeking joy through pleasure, but we never really find what it is we're looking for. So if we're not finding joy through pleasure, where, where do we find joy? Well, if we would turn to the scriptures, look at the Psalms, we would start to see that we find joy in a not-so-surprising place. We start to see it in our nearness to God. We'll consider just for a moment Psalm 1611, Psalm 21.6. You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. For you, God, make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. And I recognize this is, this is a super small sample size. But if we continue to comb through the scriptures, we would see that true and lasting joy doesn't come from pleasure, but it actually comes with, with our intimacy with God. Dallas Willard, writing on this very same thing, says joy is not this, this passing sensation of pleasure, but a pervasive sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of the goodness of God. So if we turn to the New Testament, we see that our joy is fixed firmly not outside, but inside a person, inside Christ. And this joy is not contingent on circumstances. If it, if it were, if joy was contingent on circumstances, then what Paul writes in Philippians, we would say he's out of his mind. He's completely off of his rocker. Because there's no way that Paul would say, you know, this, this is pleasure for me. This is happiness for me to be stuck in this prison cell facing my own death, writing to you. It's not contingent on circumstances, but joy is contingent on our, our union with Jesus. It's a joy that's rooted in the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. The benefits and the blessings that are bestowed on any who would look to him in faith. And so to distill this down for us, like what does this actually, what does this actually mean? Well, it means that when, when work is killing us, when our marriages feel distant, when our friendships feel tense, when our kids are unruly, when illness has worn us down, when seasons of depression won't let us go, when we're anxious and when we're mourning, and in any situation that we might find ourselves in in between, we can actually have joy because we're not looking to our situation, 
We're not looking to the pleasure that that situation might bring to us, but we're actually looking to Christ. And we're remembering that it is his love that was poured out on the cross for us. We remember that because he died, we are forgiven. We remember that because of him, we are no longer outsiders who are separated from God, but in Christ, we are God's beloved children. Remember that, it's, that this, this is not our home. We have a home. It's a heavenly home. It's a home with God where he is. We remember that God is making all things new. That one day all the sad things will come undone. Joy is not rooted in our pleasures. We remember that joy is not rooted in our circumstances. Joy is rooted in Christ and what he has done and what he is doing and what he has promised to do. And keeping that past, present, future mindset is important for what Paul is going to say next. First, from Eugene Peterson, he writes, joy is not a requirement for Christian discipleship. It's not a requirement for Christian discipleship. It is a consequence of Christian discipleship. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. We don't have to have joy before we come to know Jesus in a personal way. Rather, joy is what comes to us when we are walking with Christ in faith and obedience. Do we think of joy in the same way that Paul thinks about joy? Because if I'm honest, I don't always see joy that way. Many times I find myself on that hedonic treadmill mistaking joy for pleasure. But that's exactly what Paul wants us to see. Right? That's, that's what he wants his, his friends in Philippi to see, that true joy is, is rooted in our relationship with Jesus. He, he's trying to get us to think a certain way, to have a, a like-mindedness about ourselves, that we would think of joy this way as, as intimately connected to our relationship with Christ. Paul intends that we would share the same joy that he has in Jesus, despite his circumstances, sitting in prison, facing death, that he rejoices in his friends in Philippi. Verses 6 and 7, we see Paul pointing to this confidence and this joy for the way that he has seen God at work, how God is working in the lives of his friends. This is that past, present, future thing that we mentioned a minute ago that's going on with Paul. He prays with joy for the good work that God began and will bring to completion when Christ returns in, in these Christians, in the, in the church in Philippi. And when we look at that word, will bring, it's, it's just one, one verb in the Greek, nestled between a past event and a future event. And it reminds us that God is at work from beginning to, to end. And he is at work in us from beginning to end. And Paul's thankful, joyful for God's work in the lives of his friends, not only in their, in their justification, God's declaration of their right standing before him in Christ, but also in their sanctification as they progressively grow in holiness and Christ-likeness that will inevitably lead them to glorification, this perfect holiness when Jesus returns. This is what Paul is thankful for. He sees this work in the lives of his friends and he rejoices over it. So as Christians, as the church, we are called to live in a, 
as a community like that, marked by ongoing joy and confidence in God's continued work amongst and in us. And we could ask, do we celebrate like Paul? Do we celebrate not only the advancement of the gospel as it goes out and it, it changes lives, but do we celebrate the way that the gospel continues to grow and challenge us? The, do, we, do we celebrate the way that we see one another growing in love and in knowledge and discernment? Do we celebrate these things? Because that's God's work too. As we think about this just for a little bit, it naturally leads us into Paul's prayer that we find in verses 9 to 11. Here's what Paul prays. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer is that the Philippians would indeed grow in love for one another. And that this love would increase time and time again, that it would grow more and more. So this time of year, Penny and Jasper really like picking those white fluffy dandelions and they, they blow them all over the yard and they call them, they call them wishies and it's really cute um, until the dandelions start coming up all over the yard. But that's the picture of Paul's prayer, right? For the Philippians, that their love may multiply more and more and more like the dandelions in my yard. Hearing this, we think, that is so nice. That is so nice. Paul is just praying that everybody would just love one another. But before we are too quick to romanticize what Paul is saying here, we should see that the love that Paul is talking about is actually a regulated kind of love. That there, there's two things that this love needs to, be, needs to be honed in by. That's what he says, that he would pray that your love for one another may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment. And so we have to ask, well, what does Paul actually mean that our love is to be characterized by, by knowledge and discernment? Clearly, part, part of this, a large part of this knowledge comes from a growing understanding of the gospel and allowing the gospel of Jesus to reform our lives and to reshape our love. Here's actually how Stephen Lawson describes that reformation of our love. He says, rightly exercising Christian love requires God-given insight into people and situations. It necessitates the practical wisdom that only God can impart. Genuine love never operates in a fog. Authentic love requires penetrating discernment into the real needs of people as they find themselves in real-life situations. Real knowledge does not refer to the mere head knowledge of facts, it means having a heart understanding of people's lives that, perce that perceives their deepest needs and how we can best meet those needs. Paul is not praying that the Philippians would become smarter, but wiser in their care for one another. Compassion rather than cognition is his prayer. He requests that spiritual insight would be given to them so that they can know how best to love others. And that's a prayer for each one of us, that each one of us could be praying for another, that we are wiser, that we are more tender, more compassionate people who are shaped in the likeness of Jesus. We all have likely found ourselves in spots where we think we know what is best for somebody, 
We have the best of intentions that we are going to care for them, but when in, in reality we come to find that we've severely misread the situation. We had no idea what that person needed. Without this God-given wisdom, our love is often misguided. Perhaps it's extended with the best of intentions, but it misses the mark. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't land where it's supposed to land. And that's why Paul says... The point of having love that is regulated by knowledge and discernment is so that we can approve what is, what is excellent. Just think for a second about all of the interactions that you, that you have in a day, all of the decisions that you have to make. Some of those interactions and decisions, they're probably pretty straightforward. It doesn't really matter if you want to have coffee or orange juice with your breakfast. You could go crazy and have both coffee and orange juice with your breakfast, you could, you could do what a friend of mine does and puts a little splash of OJ in his coffee for breakfast. I don't get it. But you could do it. All that to say, it doesn't really matter. Right? I'm guessing that when, when you go to Wawa to buy your lunch, you're probably going to take it up to the register and pay the cashier. Right? Those are pretty straightforward decisions. But not every personal interaction, not every decision that we have to make is straightforward. In fact, I would say a lot of the decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis probably require a bit more thought. They're a bit more complex. They're a bit more nuanced. And they need us to be careful. Thus, we need knowledge and discernment to know how things are different. To, to notice small nuances, small ways that things aren't quite alike that we might make the best possible choices. In the words of Don Carson, loved, shaped, and honed by knowledge and discernment is the absolute requirement for testing and approving what is best, what is excellent. When we bring all of these elements together, the nature of the excellent things Paul wants believers to pursue comes into focus. That these excellent things that we are to pursue are nothing less than all of the elements characteristic of maturing Christian discipleship. And I think in this quote, if, if you caught it, Carson really points to the heartbeat of Paul's prayer. Yes, he wants the Philippians to grow in love. Yes, he wants them to grow in knowledge and discernment. Yes, he wants them to approve what is excellent. But when, when you get all of these things together, that at the heartbeat of Paul's prayer, Paul wants to see his friends grow in Christ. He wants to see them mature in every way in Jesus. He wants them to grow in holiness. He's praying for their, their, for their sanctification, that the Philippians would be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus, all with an eye towards the future on that day when Jesus will return. When we think about what this actually means for us as the church, Carson, again, his words are really helpful. He says, the church is this outpost of heaven. It's a microcosm of the new heavens and the new earth, a vision of this new realm in Christ. We're still contaminated by failures, by sin. We relapse into rebellion, self-centeredness. We are not yet what we ought to be, but by the grace of God, we are not what we were. For as long as we have left here, we are to struggle against sin and anticipate so far as we're able what it will be like to live in the untarnished bliss of perfect righteousness. We are to live with a view of the day of Christ. With all this in mind, Paul closes his prayer and points us to the end goal, which is that in all of this, 
that God would receive glory and praise. That God would receive glory and praise for who he is and for what he's done. And remember the words of the hymn to God be the glory. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him the glory, great things he has done. In our joy, in our love, in our pursuing of what is excellent, whether that be in the worst of sufferings or the smallest afflictions, Paul reminds us, just as he encourages his friends, the Philippians, that we have every reason to praise God for all that he has accomplished for us and through us and in us in Christ, and all the glory goes to him. Because as most of you know, as Andrew mentioned, this is my last Sunday as a pastor here at PCPS before Carla and Penny and Jasper and I begin a new call at Union Presbyterian in Kirkwood in uh, Lancaster County. And I'll tell you, this day has seemed uh, so far away for so long. Actually, it's, it's actually really strange that it's here. Um, and it's bittersweet. It is bittersweet for sure. Because it's never easy. It's never easy to say goodbye to people you love. It's never easy to say goodbye to people you love, even if you're only 35 minutes down the road. This last part of the sermon might be as long as the first part. <laughs> um, but what I want you all to know is that Carla and the kids and I, um, we're very excited for this move. And I think we're ready as far as we know, as far as we can see, uh, for this new ministry adventure. And as I reflected on Paul's words here in Philippians this week, I know that the reason that I can tell you that we are excited and ready for this new call is because of the friendships that we have here. It brings me a lot of comfort and joy to know that we're not going to union alone, but with you all as partners in our ministry. And I believe that, that we have a certain like-mindedness about us that we want to see uh, people know Jesus and grow in Jesus. And I'm excited to pursue that mission with the folks at Union, knowing that, that you all are linking arms with us. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of things in the months and the, the years ahead to be praying for. But for now, I would suggest that we pray Paul's prayer here in Philippians for one another. that our love for one another would grow more and more, that we would grow in knowledge and discernment, that we would approve what is excellent and seek what is best, that we would grow more and more in holiness and Christian maturity, that we would be conformed to the image of our Savior Jesus. 
and that in all that we do, whether here in Kennet or over in Kirkwood, that God would be supremely glorified in us and through us. So I'd be honored and blessed to know that you all were praying for our family and for union in that way. Words, words uh, it, it's cliche, but words really do not describe the love and the thankfulness that I have for each, each and every one of you. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the joy of friendship and particularly the sweetness of friendship in the gospel for the like-mindedness of brothers and sisters in Christ who rest on the same hope and assurance that Jesus has bought for us through his blood. And so, Lord, we would pray these words that Paul prays for his friends, and we would pray them for one another, that you, Lord, as we continue to seek to make Jesus famous wherever we go, that you would cause our love to abound more and more and that it would grow deep and strong. That it would be guided by all knowledge and discernment, that we would truly seek what is excellent. God, grow us in Christ, that we would see, that we would see holiness develop more and more in one another and rejoice in you for the work that you're doing in our midst, the work that you're doing in us. And as we labor for Christ, let us keep our eyes fixed on that day when he will return and the promises and the longings of all the good things that await. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the Presbyterian Church at Kenneth Square Thank you for the Presbyterian Church of Union. Lord, we'd ask your blessing on all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.